0: sarcoma insight
1: sarcoma insight this is our destination for education for both benign and malignant tumors
0: welcome to this episode of sarcoma insight last episode we had a wonderful guest dr weiss who shared uh, his uh, pretty unbelievable story about his osteosarcoma diagnosis uh and this week we have also uh interesting exciting uh guest. For our listeners, uh, before we go any further, how are you doing today, uh, Elise?
1: Good. It's you know the holiday season, so um, it's always a nice time of year. Yeah, and fortunate I'm getting to see some family, so um, so that's always nice. How about you, Izu?
0: It's good. I'm very excited. I uh, did some outdoor Christmas decoration with some lights. Uh, Hopefully,
1: no accidents.
0: <laughs> no accidents, but I realized that um, I'm terrible because i miscalculated the amount of lights i need so, uh. <laughs> so about five percent of my for, of the outside of my house is lit
1: well <laughs> something you can prove on for future years then yeah
0: i guess we <laughs> room advocate. for improvement
1: for 2022 yeah. Uh, yeah, is the rest yes. of your neighborhood or there some nice lights around
0: yeah i mean there, there are a lot of nice lights I'm, I'm very uh i'm very envious but i can only yeah. imagine mm-hmm. how some people have the top of the trees lit up and I, I'm not climbing any uh ladder, Oh yeah! So. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so would you mind go ahead and introducing our uh, guest today at least for our episode at least? Of,
1: of course. Yeah, so today in this episode uh we're going to be beginning another type of series. So we kind of did one unique type of episode last series where we spoke with Dr. Weiss about his experience with a sarcoma diagnosis and in this episode we're going to start our series of talking to members of the sarcoma care team. Uh, So this is where we're going to be speaking to key players uh, in the treatment and management of sarcomas uh, and benign and malignant tumors that affect the bone and soft tissues. So in these segments, we'll have an in-depth discussion with these team members, uh, and we'll be able to gain an understanding of their role and their approach to providing care for patients with tumors and sarcomas. And for today's episode, we have The great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Erica Cow, um, who we both got to meet at that conference we spoke of, that Musculoskeletal uh, Tumor Society conference in uh, Baltimore a couple months ago. So Dr. Cow is a bone and soft tissue pathologist at the Brook Army Medical Center, uh, which is a military hospital in San Antonio, Texas. She went to medical school at Uniform Services University of the Health Sciences, the F. Edward Hebert School of Medicine and completed her pathology residency at Brooke Army Medical Center. And then she completed her fellowship training at the University of Washington in bone and soft tissue pathology. She has a passion for teaching and educating, especially when it comes to sarcoma. So thank you so much for, for joining us today, Dr. Cao.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and I'm delighted to be here. So pathologists play a huge role in
1: the diagnosis and treatment and follow-up of sarcomas. Do you mind telling us a little bit more about your role and position and and what your day is like? I'm sure our listeners would would love to hear more about this.
2: Sure. So the role of the pathologist in a nutshell is to diagnose disease. Um, So on biopsy is to make an accurate diagnosis and to provide the grade of the tumor and also evaluate molecular characteristics for a diagnosis and prognosis when appropriate. And then for resections, which are larger specimens, it involves confirming the diagnosis, classifying the tumor, evaluating things like tumor size, assessing margin status to make sure the whole tumor is removed completely, and evaluating the response to therapy if there was treatment with neoadjuvant systemic therapy. So basically, the main goal is to answer what is it, where is it from, and is the treatment working? So answering all these questions is a very complex process. Um, it involves recognizing what each entity looks like under a microscope and a glass slide, which involves evaluating the morphology of cells. For example, um, the, uh, is it spindle cell? Is it epithelioid? Is it mixoid? Uh, is it round cell or is it pleomorphic? And then I look at how the cells grow like what kind of pattern they have overall, their architecture. Um, I look at what kind of lineage they are. This is often done through IHC, which I'll discuss a bit later. But basically, uh, classifying sarcomas is based on the normal cell or tissue type that the tumor cells like to recapitulate. Most are differentiated along cell lines or tissue types of the body. For example, adipose, smooth muscle, skeletal muscle, peripheral nerve, peripheral nerve boner cartilage, um, and there are even some tumor types that lack a normal tissue counterpart and have no differentiation.
0: That like I was going to say, so for some of our listeners, yeah. I don't think we've said adipose yet. So that's fat. Is that correct?
2: Oh, sorry. Sorry. Uh, yeah, fat.
0: Yeah. So um, sorry to interrupt.
2: Oh, no worries. So yeah, so most tumors are differentiated along cell lines or different tissue types, for example, fat, skeletal muscle, uh, peripheral nerve, bone, or cartilage. Uh, But there are some tumor types that lack a normal tissue counterpart and have no differentiation. And these can be particularly fun and challenging. Uh, Recent advances in our knowledge of sarcoma have identified genetic alterations behind these tumors um, that also define these tumors. So that means that a genetic workup is being incorporated into classification. My day-to-day is uh, pretty variable. Um, I look at tissue under a glass slide um, using a microscope. Uh, I attend multidisciplinary tumor boards.
0: Uh, You mentioned mentioned quite uh, a number of things. mm -hmm. Can you tell us, you just talked a little bit about tumor board, which is a very, we've mentioned it in passing in previous episodes. Can you tell us? what that tumor board at least setup is like in your institution and how uh, you approach it in terms of providing care for patients.
2: Sure. Tumor board is uh, one of my favorite parts of the week. Basically, it's um, a multidisciplinary conference that I will go to um, that involves orthopedic oncology, you guys, uh, medical oncology, um, musculoskeletal radiologists, and pathologists. We have a list of patients to discuss. We present the cases. We try to make sure the radiology and the pathology correlate and make sense. We'll discuss um, uh, potential patients who are coming in to get treatment. Uh, We will discuss new patients that have a new diagnosis um, and then discuss the management. I will get asked about what the tumor is and how I grade it. And based on that um, information that is used to uh, talk about Uh, management in terms of uh, if we're going to do uh, therapy before surgery or after surgery, um, um, what kind of resection is going to be done based on what the tumor looks like and how it grows, uh, what kind of imaging is needed to fully stage. And sometimes I get asked, uh, once the tumor is taken out, um, how it responded to the therapy. So it's a very uh, dynamic and multidisciplinary uh, discussion.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And, and these are something that occur at a lot of these, uh, big tertiary care centers. So they're a little bit different place to place, I think, but they all, I think all these institutions have this, um, really important collaborative, uh, type of meeting where all the, all the different team members get together and, and talk about, um, the unique aspects of a patient's, uh, diagnosis. So, um, thank you for telling us a little bit more about, about your role in, in that process. Um, Another thing I had a question about that I think our listeners would like to hear a little more about, and we've spoken about it in past episodes in in brief detail, but you talked about assessing margin status. Um, Can you speak a little bit more about how you determine that and specifically for sarcoma, since um, that's something where I think it's a little different from other types of cancers where uh, there's more strict guidelines as to what a good margin is, but it's something we're still trying to learn a little bit more about in uh, uh, sarcoma care, I think.
2: Yeah, so um, margin status is a huge part of what we do. Um, so when the tissue gets taken out of surgery, most specimens come out and block with a rim of normal tissue. Um, the specimen then gets oriented. Sometimes you guys will come to pathology and tell me which places uh, you think would be the closest um, or you tell me which, do- which direction the tumor is. So then um, I'll look at it grossly. And if it's large enough, Uh, involving bone. It will require a saw to adequately examine the specimen. Um, Sometimes the uh, outside of the specimen is inked with different colors to help preserve uh, um, orientation so I know which direction is um, towards the head or towards the feet or towards the front of the body or towards the back of the body. Um, And especially for bone tumors, they get evaluated a certain way where it has to be cut longitudinally to show the greatest dimension of tumor. And then the whole thing gets carefully dissected and sampled, usually uh, the standard is one centimeter of tumor per cassette. Um, a cassette is a uh, basically a, a, a block that we use to put tissue pieces in to turn into a glass slide. So then um, once the specimen is cut carefully, uh, it is cut a certain way to demonstrate the relationship of the tumor itself to the closest margins at the periphery and its relationship to surrounding structures and tissues. And then um, the distance of the tumor closest to the margins are recorded.
1: Yeah. So it's definitely a very complicated process. And I think it's something that even we as the other providers that are part of the team don't always uh, appreciate how much, how much time and detail goes into that. So yeah. Um, and uh, that's great. So in another question I, I have kind of on the same topic is with a big specimen in particular, um, it's impossible to sample every, every cell in the entire specimen. So how do you choose which areas you're going to sample uh, in order to determine that uh, margin status?
2: For some tumors when we are, uh, when you're establishing Uh, you want to look at treatment effect, you have to sample it by a slab. So um, you cut one longitudinal slab or two longitudinal slabs or multiple slabs, and you pick the best one and you submit the whole um, cross-section. And that is the the best way to determine percent treatment effect. Otherwise, uh, this part requires a lot of training and a lot of thought because it is important to sample a tumor that looks different So um, uh, for example, if something looks bloody or something looks kind of necrotic, meaning it's yellow and squishy, uh, those are important to sample because that could tell us about the tumor. Um, So it's important to sample different areas of the tumor. Um, It's important to sample um, things that look different. It's important to sample representatively. And there are a lot of guidelines on how to sample it. And that's basically what we cover in residency for four years. Awesome.
0: Yes, thank you for that. And um, definitely, so for the listeners, so once the tumor is resected, we've talked about resections for sarcomas. Usually you want ideally an area of normal cuff of tissue, at least non-tumor tissue around the resection. And the way to evaluate that as sometimes the amount of tissue that's normal sometimes can be about a millimeter in thickness, right? So very thin, or sometimes even less when it's closer to a blood vessel or a nerve. Uh, And really the pathologist would be able to evaluate this and let us know we completely took out the entire tumor or um, there were some of it that was unable to be removed totally. Is that correct, Dr. Cal?
2: Yep, that is and uh, sometimes we're able to do things like tell you if you have a fascial plane, um, which is always a good thing if there's a very thin uh, uh, or a very small margin.
0: Um, you talked a little bit about something uh, here and, and you, when you were mentioning bone, and it sounded like uh, working on bone specimens would be very uh, time consuming and maybe take longer than pre- preparing other specimens. And evaluating them, what are your thoughts on, or at least what would you, what do you usually tell people on general timelines to evaluate the specimen, whether it be the final specimen or, uh, or biopsy specimen?
2: Glad you brought that up because tissue processing is a whole nother black box in pathology. Um, a lot of people don't realize what goes on behind the scenes in order to get the tissue turned into a glass slide for evaluation. So first, the tissue has to be fixed, which means it needs to be preserved so it doesn't continue to fall apart, left to its own devices when, it's, when you take it out of the body. So fixation preserves tissues and is done by immersion into a liquid, usually 10% neutral buffered formalin. And after that, the tissue gets processed, which means the extra water in it is removed, usually by some form of alcohol. So that has to be removed from this tissue and replaced with a medium that can turn solid, usually some kind of paraffin wax to allow for the tissue to be cut. So small biopsies, this process takes about three to four hours. Routine specimens, bigger specimens can take maybe 14 to 16 hours. So this is at least one day and there's no shortcuts here or you will have many problems when you're trying to cut the tissue, stain the tissue and examine the tissue. Um, and then bone processing will take even longer because you have to remove all the calcium salts in the bone itself, in the bone matrix. And in order to do and um, you have to do that in a way so that you don't alter the cellular detail and still allow the tissue to be cut. So once the tissue is fully processed, it gets embedded into something stiffer like wax to help cut really thin sections that can be put on glass. Um, So after embedding, the tissue gets put on a microtome, which is a special cutting tool that's used to produce really thin slices. Um, It looks kind of like if you go to the grocery store to the deli section, there's like a ham slicer. It's like that, but much smaller and it (laughs) much smaller and it works much better. So it'll cut like a thin ribbon of tissue, which then gets placed on a glass slide. And, and then that's it, a really uh, good analogy. It gets stained. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, uh, that's what it reminds me of in the grocery store. Um, and then it gets stained by hematoxylin and eosin, which are uh, hematoxylin is a bluish purple dye and eosin is this beautiful bright pink, pinkish red dye. Um, and those help uh, highlight the nuclear and cytoplasmic detail for looking at the actual tissue. Uh, So in total, it can take at least a day or more, depending on the size and complexity of the tissue to turn it into a glass slide. And for bone, it can take up to a week, depending on how um, thick or how, how, uh, like a bony cortex in a young man, that's going to take, you know, at least three, four days to decalcify. Um, um, And then after all the tissue is processed, it comes out on a glass slide and the pathologist will look at it under a microscope and think about it, try to classify it um, based on what we talked about earlier, like what it looks like, lots of differentiation. And sometimes that can be tricky, which uh, so then uh, we will use something called IHC, which is short for immunohistochemical staining. Uh, so immunohistochemical staining is a technique that exploits how, a, how an antibody binds to an antigen in a way that you can detect and localize specific cells and tissues under a microscope. So this is a very helpful diagnostic tool. It can help tell you where something came from. Um, It can also be a diagnostic aid. And sometimes it's a marker of an underlying genetic alteration. There are a lot of new immunohistochemical markers being developed that actually act as surrogates for what is causing the tumor to develop from, from a molecular standpoint.
0: So but yeah, Dr. that's Cal, um, with um, you mentioned mm-hmm. a word that a lot of people have heard probably more than they would want to recently, which is antigen. <laughs> um, with, uh, <laughs> oh gosh. With, uh, COVID and, uh, <laughs> testing and I mean, so, it's a
2: similar principle.
0: Right. And so, similar uh, and principle. so yeah. And it sounds so, it sounds like specific tumors have these markers on the outside of them correct and you are able Mm -hmm. to um, attach certain proteins to those markers that are specific and in a way Mm I mean they would light up in some sort of stain right and so you'd Mm -hmm. be able to identify the number of tumors or at least if the tumor is present at all of a specific kind correct
2: yeah yeah it's very cool I mean I'm not making the antibody i uh, the lab buys it from a company and uh, <laughs> who develops this antibody. But yeah, there are many out there um, that have been made commercially available for labs. And it, it's a very useful tool. And uh, uh, biology is very cool like that.
0: So you, when you're looking, uh, there are all these different colors, yeah?
2: Well, in general, it's brown. <laughs> there's brown and there's more brown and different shades of brown. But sometimes there's red. Sometimes there can be blue.
1: And just to clarify for our listeners then, so um, it's, it's the combination of which ones are positive and negative. It's not necessarily being positive for this one thing means that it's this specific tumor. It's the whole spectrum of what's positive Correct. and negative, and you're selective with what, which ones you test for based mm-hmm. on what the tumor looks like under the microscope.
2: Yeah. So in general, uh, their, uh, tumors will have an expression profile, uh, meaning that they are known um, or most of them are known to prefer or to have a, a specific uh, signature. Like they will have, uh, for example, something will be positive for two or three stains and negative for another two or three stains. And so all these um, different uh, stains in combination can help classify a tumor. Very cool.
1: Um, and so what you just explained is primarily for determining a final diagnosis. This is the days long or potentially weeks sometimes process of determining exactly what a tumor is. But what about when people like Izu and I are in the operating room and want some information right away or what we call a frozen section? Can you tell us a little bit more about what, how that differs from uh, what you just explained?
2: Sure. So a frozen section is like the pathology version of an um, aortic aneurysm or something like that. It's it, ha- it happens um, on the spot and it's very time sensitive. So as you mentioned before, when you process fresh tissue and turn it into a glass slide, it takes several days. It takes a while. Uh, For rapid diagnosis during a surgery, we can take fresh tissue and it can be flash frozen instead of routinely processed. This can be used to help construct a working diagnosis and allow the appropriate triage of tissue. Um, Although the caveat being that because of the uh, freezing process, um, the histologic quality is not as great. So there are limitations to what this can do. In general, frozen sections are very helpful to identify uh, lesional tissue to see if there's enough for diagnosis. So so, um, it's very reasonable for a pathologist to say, yes, this is, you're in the tumor, you have plenty of tumor, um, we're good to go. Um, This can also be helpful uh, if you're worrying about um, entities other than sarcoma, which would require different processing upfront for example, if you send something and it looks like lymphoma, then uh, you know right away you can send some for flow cytometric analysis. If you send something and it looks like sarcoma, then you know you can potentially freeze uh, more of it for um, tumor banking or something like that. Or you could save uh flash freeze additional tumor for um, culture for, for genetic analysis later. Uh, Frozen can also be helpful to distinguish something that is benign or low grade from something that's higher grade. Um, Although, uh, again, classification of that is best done on permanent sections. Um, Sometimes it's also helpful to uh, determine uh, margin status, Um, although that can also be tricky because of all the artifact from frozen sectioning itself. Um, And usually when there's a tumor that is uh, really obvious um, at the margin. It's usually obvious to you guys too, macroscopically in the OR. And then frozen sections are also a great opportunity for us to review the specimen together. Um, uh, once you take it out of the body, for example, the fascial plane may be slippery and, you know, stuff may move around. So it's helpful um, for orientation. And then we we discuss, you know, uh, orientation, margins of concern, and other areas of concern but even a
1: frozen section still takes a little bit of time. Um, and so that's often a step that we as the surgeons with Izu and I will wait for in the operating room before we proceed with the next step of the surgery. So um, I think that's something that our patients and family members don't always aren't always aware about that that's one of the parts of the time that's involved in, in the operating room is that frozen section analysis, but it's really important and it's really great for us to have good relationships with our pathologists um, in order to get really good information. So um, we definitely appreciate what you do on that front, that's for sure.
2: As you mentioned that um, the frozen section, once you take it out of the body in the OR, it has to make its way to pathology, which is never next to the OR. It's always, you know, down a flight of stairs, across the whole building, across several tunnels, who knows. And then once it gets to pathology, it has to be actually frozen, which takes a little bit of time to freeze tissue, depending on how big it is, and what kind of tissue it is. And then it has to get cut again on like a the mini deli slicer I was telling you about. So it still has to get cut by hand and frozen, and put on a slide. It's just flash frozen and then stained. So it still takes a little bit of time to do.
0: Yeah. And um, you touched on, we've talked about grading a few times uh, during this. Um, and for, and a point you mentioned response to therapy. And so for some people, it might seem, you know, like, wow, you, so you can take these specimen or these the tissue, um, stain them, right? Uh, look under a microscope and you're able to tell their grade or how, um, you know, active they are, how problematic this tumor might be or how this tumor is responding to radiation or chemotherapy, how exactly, if you can give us just a uh, slight introduction into this, you know, what for a lot of people is a black box, um, how is that diagnosis made on grade and what are you looking at when you can say, well, this tumor has a great response uh, to therapy, whether it be radiation or chemotherapy?
2: So, um, Sarcoma grading, so grading is the pathologist's attempt to predict the biologic behavior of something, and that's reflected in the histologic grade. This is cool because I think it's amazing that we can predict how something behaves based on what it looks like. It's kind of like being a soothsayer. Uh, So grading is viewed as a categorical system based on assessment of various um, features like mitotic activity, necrosis, uh, cellularity, and atypia. And the ultimate goal is to distinguish things with the low grade that have a low chance of metastasis um, and telling those from those and telling low grade entities from those that are high grade and have a significant risk of metastasis. In general, in sarcoma land, grade one is considered low grade and grade two and three are considered high grade. And um, you get those grades from a a grading system called the French uh, Federation of Cancer Center, the FNCLCC system. Um, That is the most widely used. The other version is the NCI, they're very similar. So the FNCLCC system uh, has a set number of points in each category, which is then added up for a final score. So, Tumor differentiation has a score of one to three. Mitotic activity has a score of one to three. And necrosis has a score of zero to two. Um, and then each, each uh, for a for tumor, uh, you'll look at each category and um, uh, take the score and add it up to get you to grade one, grade two, or grade three. Uh, now, this system is kind of limited because some sarcomas aren't graded because they're either high grade or low grade by definition, or their grade doesn't really match prognosis um, based on what we know of how these tumors behave. For example, giving sarcoma is a grade three by definition and considered high grade. Um, and another example is a well-differentiated liposarcoma is an inherently low grade non-metastasizing lesion. So those are examples um, of when the FNCLCC system system uh, is not as helpful. Um, So that's about uh, grading. I think we also wanna talk about, um, we wanna know if the tumor is is responding adequately to therapy and that means treatment effect, which generally means necrosis, uh, tumor necrosis that is. Although sometimes you can get treatment effect in terms of, um, sometimes it can look like uh, hyalinization or fibrosis Um, Sometimes it can be less cellular. Um, Sometimes tumors that are treated can look much different than uh, what they look like on biopsy.
0: Before you go any further, necrosis uh, would mean for our listeners?
2: uh, So we look at tumor coagulative necrosis, which is uh, when cells die because they lose uh, their, they grow so quickly, they lose their blood supply. Um, It just means cell death. So we can look at the slide and tell if a, if a cell is, is dying or if a cell is alive.
1: When we're looking at post-treatment is a good thing. So this is uh, uh, something we always right. like to hear, high numbers for tumor necrosis in these uh, post-treatment. Right. So,
2: it's actually very simple. satisfying to present a resection that is pretty much 100% necrosis. It's my favorite thing. Yeah. Talk about a tumor that is responding very well to therapy. Yeah.
1: I think it's our our favorite news to give to patients too, is that also. Um, Well, I had a couple questions as well that I think would be of interest to some of our listeners because we know that you mentioned in a frozen section, you can be able to tell if there's uh, enough tissue for a diagnosis, but sometimes we're doing biopsies or resections in the operating room and uh, you're not able to get a diagnosis, and generally in the biopsy setting, of course. But uh, tell us a little bit more about why this might happen and what uh, next steps can be uh, in that situation, whether it's referral to another institution. Sometimes I know that happens for really challenging specimens or just a resampling, for example.
2: Yeah, so, the, so um, this is why it's important to have a multidisciplinary discussion at Tumor Board because biopsies can be tricky. Um, a tumor can be heterogeneous, meaning it can have multiple components that look different. So you can biopsy one area that may look low-grade and the rest of it may be high-grade and we wouldn't be able to see it. Um, so we can't you know, diagnose it if we don't see it. Um, <clears throat> a lot of tumors have overlapping morphologies, so that can also be very difficult. For example, a Ewing sarcoma consists of small round blue cells on a biopsy and a a special type of chondrosarcoma called a mesenchymal chondrosarcoma also consists of small round blue cells, but it's juxtaposed to a cartilaginous component. So if you only biopsy the round blue cell component on a biopsy, you can't tell there's cartilage there. So to make the diagnosis, it's helpful if you know that there is cartilage um, or if you don't, then you, are, you could um, be mistaken in a diagnosis. So situations like that, which is why um, it's help- helpful to have radiology and you guys. Um, and then we always, um, so sometimes tumors um, uh, have necrosis in them. And if only the necrotic tissue is biopsied, it's very difficult to diagnose a tumor that is all dead and not really well preserved on a slide. Um, Sometimes if a tumor is all dead, you can't perform ancillary testing on it. So we can't get genetic testing. We can't um, do uh, immunohistochemical staining. It doesn't work all that well on dead tissue. Um, So then in that case, every biopsy would be reasonable to get more information
1: it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think is what hopefully some of our patient or family listeners might come away with is just kind of part of the the nature of the pathology is that it's is very complicated. And sometimes uh, it's helpful to get more information in order to make sure that we're making the correct diagnosis, because that's the most important part when it comes to creating a good treatment plan for that patient. So uh, resampling may be necessary, and it's just uh, kind of part of what we have to deal with in in this field, uh, for better or worse, I guess.
2: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And sometimes resampling is, um, for example, uh, we have a biopsy and we work it up and come to uh, the correct diagnosis, and there's no tissue left to do Um, genetic testing to help find treatment options, in which case sometimes, you know, it's, it's a good thing to have more tissue from a biopsy or a subsequent resection to continue that um, treatment option.
1: Great. Yeah. Well, yeah, that makes sense. And, um, you know, it's something that I think we've, we've definitely seen before is that, uh, you know, we need, need a little bit more information and more tissue in order to understand the tumor a little bit better. Um, Yeah. Easy, any other questions? Otherwise, I think we we should maybe talk about if Dr. Cow has any thoughts on whether there's anything she sees coming forward in the future of uh, pathology for sarcoma.
0: Yes, uh, he took that question out of my mouth. (laughs) I I think that's really where, you know, what I, you know, I want to, to ask her, you know, I think we've been, we've had pathologists for a while and I think we've had, you know, advances and stainings and our knowledge of being able to identify tumors more. You mentioned genetics uh, earlier. Is this something that is going to be useful just for identifying after diagnosis or maybe even um, identifying beforehand? I mean, what, what do you think about the, what the future holds for pathology? in sarcoma?
2: Yeah, so um, that's a great question. This field continues to grow, um, which makes it super exciting. It's actually kind of a newer field because a lot of these advances in medical knowledge, a better understanding of all the underlying genetic um, abnormalities behind these tumors, all that's very new. Um, In fact, we have new tumors being described all the time. Uh, Sometimes I'll send testing on a tumor and it comes back with a genetic alteration that I'd never come across before and no one else has either. So we just keep uh, learning more about these tumors and uh, it's very exciting to be part of that. You know, I feel like um, we're just gonna keep learning more and more about these tumors. We're gonna keep getting better at classifying these tumors and better classification means um, we'll understand how they behave better. And it's just, it's just uh, we just keep adding more information to it, to what we know and that's I think a good thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, th- the more we know, uh, the better care we can provide, hopefully, is is um, I-, I think what we'd like that information to lead to, of course. Um, so awesome. Well, we can tell very much that you're really excited and very knowledgeable about what you do. So thank you so much for joining us for today's episode and sharing all of that really valuable information. I think Izu and I learned uh, some things ourselves uh, from from your discussion today. So we really appreciate it. And Dr. Cow, do you have any other thoughts that you'd like to share um, before we we sign off today?
2: Um, Well, just thanks for having me. appreciate it and happy holidays to you both. Stay safe. Yeah. Happy holidays to you as well. I think the classic
1: saying that people still say is what, uh, test negative and stay positive, right? Yeah. Avoid <laughs> the my antigen. favorite, my favorite, <laughs> Yeah, my favorite is,
2: uh, make good choices.
1: Awesome. And, um, uh, easy. I'll let you do the honors of your, your close.
0: <laughs> yes. Um, it is important to note that every case is unique and uh, treatments for each diagnosis dependent on the discussion with your team of physicians. If you'd like more information, please feel free to check out the links in the episode description. For our next episode, we'll begin our foray into soft tissue tumors. So far, we have covered a lot of bone tumors and we'll begin with a very uh, common tumor or tumor type, lipomas and atypical lipomatous tumors. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sarcoma Insight. If you enjoyed the episode, please feel free to subscribe to our podcast, and or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sarcoma Insight Podcast. Sarcoma Insight.